0: Anyway, hey, we are in 1 Corinthians, as I mentioned. I'm going to share today, um, just out of the first chapter, I really do, uh, I've been teaching here in Mountain Home for 24 years now, um, in a sense from the pulpit, so to speak, and I understand more now than I really ever have of, of my calling, I think that's a good thing, right, you kind of just sort that out as you go. I love to be able to walk through the word with people. When I first started as a teacher, uh, as a pastor, preacher, you know, I I felt I needed to come off as smart. And I realized I can't pull that off. So it's like I kind of had to get the big words and lots of syllables. And and it's stimulating to study that way and and to unearth these things. And like, wow, and all these big words. And and I realized I, I I have to go to the dictionary to look them up. I, it's not straight language it's not blue collar life it 's not where it's just not my roots, so, as I kind of went through a phase in the early years and and then I got, well, I, you need to teach this sermon style on sunday morning i need to, this is what we do culturally, and as I wrestled with that for a while, I was like, I just give up i 'm just going to jump in the word we 're going to walk through the word when it says I should be done i won't be But I'll work towards it, you know, and and then I will get done because I love our children's ministry team. And and they know, kids know when they're done. And the teachers know when the kids know that they're done. And somebody will be coming through that door if I'm not done. So you kind of get it. So anyway, I just love to be able to share the word with you. So walk through together. Because when you leave here, whether it's your vocation that takes you someplace else or whatever it may be, Our heart's desire as a leadership team, my heart's desire is that you'll have a closer walk with Jesus and you'll have a greater confidence in reading the word and you'll have a greater sense of like, man, this makes sense to me now. So we're going to look at this 1 Corinthians, we're going to go clear through to verse 9 and then we're going to stop and pray. I think you'll see why I'm going to do it a little different today as we dig in. I'm calling this series, as you see on the projection, called out, called up. God's invitation to live and love at a higher level. Because I believe that really is what he's inviting us to. Not just know him, that can't be anything greater. But to actually live in such a way that that relationship is somehow reflected to the people around us. That people around us would know there's something different about them. Not weird exclusively, but there's a warmth, a love, a light. There's something different because we're called to live at a higher level. 1 Corinthians is a letter to a location, but not just the address, but the people of Corinth. Corinth, a port city. Some have said the most important city in Greece at that time. To understand it, in quick summary, Corinth would be, if you were to make a hybrid city nowadays, you would take and blend the perversion of San Francisco with the ungodliness of New York, cover it with the commerce and pleasure-seeking of Los Angeles, and you'd have first century Corinth. It really was a happening place, it was very metro, it was very much the contemporary place. It's very much like what we live in today in, in our American society. This letter. In this letter, we will be challenged because there's a lot of parallels and a lot of similarities. Let me tell you a few other things about Corinth, because Corinth is much like what we know as the culture today. I say culture so that we don't think of just one specific city. We don't live in say California or New York. Some of us, some of you, are political refugees from those, you know, states or you know, kind of the coastal side, either either coast. Anyway, I'm getting into all that. But the truth is, it's our culture. It, it, it's changing in Boise, and it's changing in Mountain Home, and it may be seen first somewhere else, but it comes this way, because it's just what's tr- the trends. it's what's happening. Corinth, like today, was affluent, a very affluent city. Corinth had comfort, opportunity. Sadly, believe it or not, it also was sexually obsessed they were morally bankrupt. They were deeply depraved and arrogantly indifferent to God. Let me go through that again. You tell me what I'm talking about, Corinth or modern culture. Sexually obsessed, morally bankrupt, deeply depraved, and arrogantly indifferent to God, which is the world you live in. And, and, and it's just what we're going to see today is how did the first century church deal with this? Because I believe we have here in this letter, and as we journey through it, we're going to see so much encouragement, so much correction, so much to be aware of. We are an affluent society. Will we agree with that? Because you may think, well, I'm not, but my neighbor over my legacy is. Well, here, here's the thing. When you consider the socioeconomic reality for the entire planet, you're going to have to see that you're on the upper level. You're not in deep poverty. But understand this, no society has ever survived affluence, ever. You can chew on that one for a while. It just doesn't happen because we rise, we rely on sensual, pleasure, carnal things, and those things just take you the opposite. As a, as a society, what I think of as Western civilization, we peaked in 2019. We are literally on the way down right now. We're down in regards to product production, efficiency. You may have the numbers, but anybody who's tried to get service done, we're we're declining. There's a lot of factors that are coming into play. And I say this not to in any way discourage. It's like, listen, let's just know where we live. Let's recognize how are we to be different in this world. We're going to be honest and consider how it is that we're to live. Because God has called us to be in the world, yet not of the world. And that isn't just something that's happened since COVID. That's something that's been happening in the world since the church was established, since God's seekers have been on the planet, since Adam and Eve were 10 feet out of the Garden of Eden, learning how to now live and love God and work through life's struggles and trials. So we want to consider is the church influencing the culture? Or is the culture influencing the church? Because I, I think we have to agree, in the big picture, there's pockets where it's on track, but in the big picture, generally speaking, what's presented to the world as the church, and, and there's a distinctive there, what's presented to the world as the church, the church is more concerned about connecting with culture compromising and being accepted and developing friendships and somehow of association. That somehow if I have that association and they like me, they'll they'll accept my hypocrisy. That it's okay for me to be like them so that they will listen to me. I, I don't think that's solid. Uh, I think that vacillates. I think that's shifting sand. We're actually called to be distinct. We're called to live as light in the world. We're not to be shining a light so bright in someone's eyes it causes them to turn away but the warmth and the truth of light were to live in such a way in this world, there, there's a distinct difference, a good difference. Because I believe people want to see more than they want to read. They want to see more than they want to read. They don't want to read a message. They don't want to read a doctrinal statement. They want to see a life that was changed because of those beliefs. The life that was changed. They want to I want to see a life. I don't want to read about something that might happen. I want to see somebody's life that's transformed, and you're the same way. All that, let's just uh, dig in. We have verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which reads, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we hear we have at the beginning Paul, a servant of God, extending his life to the people of Corinth. You see, he he identifies that he's one who sent. You may notice in your format, depending on you know what how your your Bible was formatted, if you would, by how the publisher put it together. You may notice there that there's a portion of this first section that are in italics. For example, this is called to be an apostle. To be is put in italics. The translators felt that helped to explain the context a little better. They, they distinguished it so you would know. That's why it's in italics. And what it accomplished, actually, when they put it in italics, italics it was actually more commonly a good way to confuse people. Because it really didn't bring clarity. We're not, Paul wasn't called to be an apostle. He was called a, a, an apostle. He was set apart for God's purposes. He had his agenda. He had his opinion. He had his drive. And he was going to remove this thing called Christianity before it was called Christianity. He was going to remove this blight on the Jewish system. So he was heading to Damascus. He was heading north. And on the way of doing his own thing, God met him. Paul wasn't seeking God. He was doing his thing for God and in, in telling God to like it. And God met him on that road and, and, and brought to him the truth of Jesus Christ. And Paul responded to that truth and be, literally came into a relationship, born again, born of the Spirit. And God said, I have a purpose for your life, just like he has a purpose for yours and yours and yours, all of us. And so Paul was set out with a specific purpose. He, had, he was an apostle, one who was sent out with a purpose. An apostle not of the church or not of some other person, but Jesus Christ through the will of God. God's will being realized. And so I want to make that emphasis and bring that understanding. You know, He was also, as you notice, he's writing a letter to the church of God, which is at Corinth. The church of God gathers at Corinth. We know it. We've discussed it. Some of us have said it in this way. The church is not the building, and it's not. The building is where we gather. The address is where we centrally kind of come together and congregate. The church is the people. The church, you know, is, is really what you know. God, God has saved us and called us into a purpose. And so, ecclesia is the Greek word, and some of you know are aware of that. It's called out, They're called out from the world, with a purpose. You're still in the world, but called out and brought together with the purpose of honoring God, with the purpose of knowing God and declaring God. The word ekklesia was a, was a Greek word. It, would, it was used to even speak of when it was translated, you know, the Hebrew synagogue. But it, where we see it primarily used in Greek culture, it was used of city gatherings with a purpose. It would be like a town hall meeting or like ours would be like a city council meetings. But here it's used to speak of God's gathering for his people, for his purposes in the city of Corinth. It's not the building. It's the people and the purpose. And that's important for us to understand and realize because there is how many bodies of Christ? One body. Okay. We are a part of that body. We gather as the body of Christ in this building. and we use the identification of our gathering this is Calvary Chapel Mountain Home. As we're a part of the body of Christ. And it's really important because Paul is not talking about following some person. And you're going to see as we go along. He's he's speaking of this relationship God has brought him into. And he's writing to people he's familiar with. He got to know. And so as we see in this next section. Verses 4 through 9. He is very grateful. He's thankful for the relationship that he has with the Corinthian believers. Paul spent over a year and a half at Corinth. We know that. We looked at that when we looked into the introduction out of Acts 18 here a couple weeks ago. But what we see here, he's sharing with them what he prays for them and what they have in Christ. And so we're going to look at this real quick, catch the highlights, and then we're going to pray in regards to what we see. Because I have found that in your walk, in my journey, as I encourage people, as I'm encouraged by the Lord, there's sometimes you just don't know what to say when you pray. Is that true? You just you kind of have a pattern and a, and a, and a certain repetition and certain priorities, and those are important. But sometimes, like, man, I, I just want to deepen my prayer life. I always go to the prayers of Scripture. Why are they preserved? So we know what they, how they prayed back then exclusively? No, it's actually an insight into the principles and the practice and the awareness and the purpose of the prayer. So here we have a prayer of Paul's. It's, it's, it's robed in gratitude. I thank my God always concerning you, this, this gathering in Corinth, for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance, in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. As you glance upon that and just consider some things I'll bring out in verse 4, as Paul was identifying how he prayed and what they have in Christ, they had grace given to them. We see in verse 5, they were enriched by everything in Christ, in Him. In verse 6, there's this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 7, speaking of the the gifts that were given, and they look forward to Jesus' return. Verse 8, we see they're confident that Jesus will keep them and teach them. In verse 9, reminding them of the relationship of God's faithfulness. And as I mentioned at the start, let us pray. And you may want to... Look at this portion in your, in your text or your Bible, whatever. You know, I know we're supposed to, at this point, assume the preposition, right? Like this, hands together, head bowed, eyes closed. You know why you do that? Because you were taught, maybe in Sunday school or wherever, you do this for a really important reason. So you keep your hands off the person next to you. That's why you're taught that. That's really a, no other, the primary purpose. Little kids, why are you close to bow, bow your head and close your eyes? So you won't look and see if someone else is praying. So you won't be distracted visually by the things around you. So really, ultimately, in a very practical way, those are good things. We don't have to pray that way all the time. There are certain times I go to the hills, and I, I literally force myself to look at his creation as I pray. And sometimes in declaration of his majesty, sometimes in brokenness, realizing how amazing he is. But today I want to ask you to pray with me. I'm going to, I'm going to actually be looking at it while I'm praying. And we're going to pray these principles and, and even in a personal application that we too, like the church in Corinth, the church, the gathering here, we would we'd be remembering and be aware. God, thank you for who you are. May we always be grateful concerning you for the grace which you've given to us by Jesus you're so good God and may we continue to learn and grow we know it's not because we just discipline ourselves and try to figure it out but because you're faithful and you teach us Lord and you enrich us in everything in all conversation all utterance and all knowledge God thank you so much for what you do as we have continued to to grow in our personal relationship with you and, and be able to speak of the things you've done in our lives we don't know everything and we feel like we hardly know anything but god you you've spoke to each one of us who know you and are born again and we can tell and speak of your great work and your amazing faithfulness Help us to do that even more and god that we would also be aware that you've given us gifts You've empowered and equipped us to be about your spiritual work in this world. And so may we stir up the gift that is within us individually. May we use use them collectively. May it be for your glory and not any attention to ourselves. Whatever gift you decide to distribute, according to your word, to the person you prefer, not prefer, that you decide. Lord, do that and may we know how to walk in accordance with those gifts you've given individually. And God, we are looking forward to your return, eagerly waiting for what you'll reveal even today and what you'll make known when you blow the trumpet and call us home and we see you in your glory. Thank you, God. We are eager to see that. We be about your work. In the meantime, we know, God, that you are faithful, that you, God, will keep us. We have diminishing confidence in ourselves and a greatly increasing confidence in you, Jesus. For you are faithful, you who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in our lives. And so we would thank you in advance for that as well, for your faithfulness. And God, thank you so much that you've called us into the gathering, to this unity, to this fellowship with you and with brothers and sisters. Even today, will you walk us through your word and teach us all you'd have for us, God. We believe that you desire for us to grow, walk closer with you. We believe that you'll accomplish that in our lives as we surrender to you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So here we have Paul encouraging. And you know, when um, you ever had that time where you realize you're in this meeting and they're saying things like, you know, I'm so glad you've done such a great job for the company and we're just, and they're just kind of building you up. It's just amazing. And then, but we're letting you go. You know, that kind of like, all right, here comes the good, we know the bad's coming. And then that's kind of a relational reality sometimes. That's not so much the case here, but there is an element. He's like, because he's complimenting and he's praising, not to prepare them entirely for what's coming, but actually to remind them, this is who you are. Versus, you know, even we could say one through nine. Know this work taking place, but don't be content. Don't consider ah, I've arrived. I'm not as sinful as other people, so therefore I'm okay. He's saying, listen, there's some things we got to talk about. You're doing good. This is going well. I'm glad to see this. You, want, you have a relationship with Jesus. Let's talk about some things now. And so verse 10, he's talking about some things. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that you, there be no divisions among you but that you'd be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. He's not saying that you'd speak this Christianese jargon and cliches and all this foreign language to the world around you. He's speaking that you'd be united, that you'd be in agreement, that you would be individuals but not independent. Individuals that are interdependent, because that's what a body is. Each part is dependent upon the other part. So that we would be interdependent, but we'd also be able to say, hey, some of these things ought not be. Because the word he speaks of here, you notice it uh, speaks of uh, the divisions there in verse 10. That's not, it, 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 it's where we get the English word schism or factions, but the, the context shows us a little more root, more depth to it. The con- this word speaks of to tear or to rend. It, it, to rip or tear apart. The root word, the, actually really the word, is, is when, you know, when Jesus died on the cross. You remember the veil of the temple? Was divided from top to bottom. It was rent. It was ripped apart. What's going on here? Paul is pleading with Christians, don't be ripping into each other. Don't be tearing each other apart. Remember verses 4 through 9? Listen, this is what God's doing in your life. You have this testimony. You have a personal relationship with Christ. You've aligned yourself. You've received from him the ability to love, and you want to love like he's loved you. You want his love in you, coming forth from you. So remember who you are, and don't be ripping into each other. Aren't you glad that only happened in the earliest church, the first century church? (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot of laughter, because we have to, laughter is an expression sometimes of sorrow because we are it's like it is funny not really though huh because I think I laugh I think oh man like it's just say there's nothing new under the sun according to Ecclesiastes this is still taking place it is sadly still true and he says, don't be ripping each other apart remember who you are now you think about this it's such a practical letter listen don't be ripping into each other we don't do that no, we love Jesus. We know He's just so good for us, and He loves me. before the Bible tells me so. It's like, no, no, and he's okay. So let me just get to the point. Verse eleven: It's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household. They weren't rats. They didn't like, go. They just. It was, it was, it was, I know this that you that there are contentions among you. It speaks of quarrels. Now I say this: that each of you says. I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Peter, or Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's using this expression and this comparison, but I I actually believe it was was not just a positional thing, like a preference of personality. I, I think it was deeper. I think it was more uh, internal and it was more personal. It speaks of you're arguing about stuff, you're quarreling. Contentions, divisions, you know, these things he's speaking of, tearing apart, is always rooted in sensual or earthly wisdom. Sensual meaning of the senses, of this frame, of this body, what you see, what you hear, what you feel, what you taste, what you touch, that that experience then drives a certain desire or preference. And earthly wisdom is, is for sensual. I mean, this type of, of of wisdom. And so understand that when this has taken place, this is my observation in, in teaching and engaging with hundreds, thousands of people, seriously not, I mean, just 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 simple mathematics and chronology. It's been 30 years of teaching. Every divisive person has a case to prove and they need an ear and an audience to support them and listen to them. Let me say that again. Every divisive person has a case to prove. They want you to know their situation, their circumstances. They have a case to prove and they need an ear and an audience to support them and listen to them. My advice is don't be a support for carnal wisdom. Well, what, what does carnal wisdom look like? How would I know? Isn't there, is there any you know, framework or any you know, abbreviated portion of Scripture that would give us an insight? There is. There actually is. In James chapter 3, we'll go there if you would. We'll bring it up on projection. James chapter 3. It's where we really kind of told some of the details of the heavenly wisdom and the earthly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom, let's begin within verse 13 of James 3. Well, actually, let's just begin with this question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness. which speaks of strength under control. The meekness of wisdom. But... If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. So he's saying, well, who's wise with understanding? How would we know? See, we live in still a form of the information age. I think we can agree with that. We have information. our, Our primary source is the internet, practically speaking. But information is not entirely of great value if you don't have knowledge. Knowledge is taking all this information and bringing it into a smaller category, if you would. Maybe you're going to work on a project or do something, so you do research. Tons and tons of information. But if you've ever YouTubed how to do a home project, there's a lot of information out there that's garbage. And you've got to bring that back into good knowledge. You've got to say, okay, here, this is the knowledge. Well, knowledge now, a package and brought into perspective, needs to put into practice. So wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. So you have all this information, you bring it into a sense of knowledge, and then you put this wisdom, the wisdom is putting that into practice, knowing where it's going to take you. So he's saying that there's this type of wisdom that is very powerful, that's strong. But notice he said, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. Here lies one of the biggest challenges. We actually lie to ourselves. Well, I'm doing it for this reason, and this is why. They need to be straightened out, and this needs to be this, and that has to be that. And, and he's saying, listen, don't, don't boast and lie to yourself. Because I believe the resolution for this, the clarification for this, the, the strength and the relief for this comes in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It comes in your private prayer room where you're working out, like, man, that guy makes me so mad. I, I just, oh, God, I can't hide it from you. I hate him. I hate him. This is just driving me over the top. You know, take it to the Lord. But don't lie to yourself either. Don't go, you know, Lord, I just pray that if, if, a, if lightning's on the horizon and if it's your will, they would be under the point of lightning. If it's your will, God. And this really fluffy, stupid prayer stuff where you're like, whoa, whoa wait a minute, don't lie. God, I don't, I don't really like this situation. And now as I realize that, I don't like my response either. I don't like my reaction to this. Lord, could you could you show me? I don't I don't want to lie to myself because I, I think that's the biggest struggle we face. We actually lie to ourselves, and we convince ourselves it's okay, and then we sell our our case and present our position to people around us. And because they have a uh, social connection and they're empathetic and they're kind and they love the Lord and they don't want to see us hurt, then they're open to our persuasion about our position. And next thing you know division has taken place. Notice here, he says, this wisdom does not descend from above. It's a different type of wisdom. It's of this plane, earthly. It's of these, the frame, your body, sensual, and its source in, in demonic. It's really contrary to God. Think about it. Is there any way that the enemy of your soul would maybe be a little deceptive? Is there any chance he might actually use the word of God To confuse the children of God about the nature of God, consistently he just that's his practice. In the Garden of Eden, how's God not? I don't think he put his you know because this is wisdom, right? Just your your, uh, intelligent phrase position. How's God not said? You know, serpent didn't do that. Didn't God say this? Well, true, he did say not to eat, but he also said this. He say he used the word of God to try to deceive the children of God. It wasn't just one time. Jesus himself, Satan tempts him, or tries to tempt him, because he wasn't tempted. Throw yourself off the temple, for the word of God says that God will catch you. And Jesus said, you're an idiot. Well, he didn't say it that way. I mean, it's not recorded in those terms. He actually quoted accurately the word of God. So no, this is a practice of the enemy that he'll put into your life. We're told in Ephesians 6 to be aware of the schemes of the enemy. Schemes in that context speaks of the wiles or the strategies, the military mindset, the strategic angle that Satan will take. He will take the word of God and allow that to be propelling you forward for carnal purposes. It's crazy. It, It just seems like, oh, wait a minute. Are you serious? Yeah. That's why we want to be honest. This is just be honest. Do not boast and lie against the truth. Notice verse 17. Here's what we want to, we want to see. The distinction. There's a difference between what we're talking about, uh, the wisdom of this world, and the wisdom that comes from above. It's first pure, then peaceable. Pure meaning it doesn't have ill motive. It doesn't have self-promotion. It's first pure, then peaceable. It's actually calm, if you would. Even the expression is for, for or towards peace. It's gentle, It's willing to yield full of mercy and good fruit without partiality and without hypocrisy. What was happening in the early church, specifically as we've seen from our text in the church at Corinth, is these fractions, these things were coming in and ripping at each other and accusing one another and putting pointing fingers and all these things that were not bearing good fruit. And if somebody's position and their promotion actually is putting people down and tearing things up, consider what kind of wisdom that is because you have a framework to look at. Without partiality, without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, you understand, it actually comes from um, the word of, of, of the theater where you put on a, mass, a, a a face and you use this face and you act out that character. And then when you went to the next scene, you turned that face around, and now you're a different person, and so then you acted out that character. And do you see how that is in, in real life? Where someone puts on this face to somebody, but they're actually somebody else over here because their desire is to self-promote their position and their opinion and their, their, their you know, plight in life sometimes. Let's jump back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're moving along to verse 14. Paul has used these examples, and he's now going to say in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Well, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Interesting, isn't it? Because Paul here is, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he stops and says, actually, I'm glad I didn't baptize a whole bunch. I I didn't make that the emphasis. Some of you have been around and and even heard, and, and maybe many of you know that some Churches require baptism to confirm salvation. If you're not baptized, you're not saved. Do you really think from this text you could support that? You see what Paul says. I, I didn't really baptize many people. That wasn't as important to me as them coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. If it was necessary for salvation, he'd be dipping and dunking every dude he come across. Right? I mean, you just grab them, hold them under till the bubbles come up. They, they really repent. Turn them loose and send them to heaven. But there's no... It's not works. It's not works. Baptism is an expression of a born-again Christian. It's an act of obedience. You don't get baptized to get salvation. Because you're born again, you respond to the instruction to be baptized. Very important that that order is understood. You can be baptized... And not be saved. You can be saved and not be baptized. Baptism is an expression of obedience. It's an expression of a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. And there's, like I said already earlier, there's an amazing joy and calmness and peace when we just simply walk in obedience. We don't have to know all the answers, but we just walk in obedience. Notice what he said though. He knew what he was to do. In verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize which that's a very important statement when you consider that doctrine I referenced. He says, but to preach the gospel, his job was to announce the good news. He knew that. I'm going to announce the good news in a possible use words. I'm going to declare, and he did primarily use verbalization, but his life was consistent with his declaration, which should be the same for you and I. When we're living it and declaring it, people are making that connection like well you know he says that and he does that how sad when they say he says that but he does that and that gets very confusing that's the hint of that hypocrisy we looked at in james so paul is going to begin to then give us an insight into what that wisdom is the wisdom of god because he says not with the wisdom of words you cannot talk anybody into a, a relationship with jesus christ You can present to them the truth. You should be willing to discourse and dialogue and dig in. But you cannot talk them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. There has to be a conviction, a work of the Spirit. For the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit, God himself, convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And a lot of times we want to try to talk. We love people so much we want to talk them into a relationship with Christ. But there's that part of like, we want to present the truth, but we got to let them respond. And so we're going to dig into that next week. Um, we're going to dig into what the, how that was, where it wasn't the wisdom of words. It wasn't the intellectual alignment. It was the, the work of a, a honest, true realization of who God is and how God is and what God offers. I want to give you four takeaways, four points to hold from this text. I like to do it that way just to kind of remember there's a few things just to take, take to heart. Remember what he's done for you. We've seen it in the church in Corinth as we see this letter unfold and begin, as we see who was writing it and who the primary initial audience was. But we understand these things also were given to us. Grace. Who you are in Christ is who you are. And always remember this. I don't know who said it first, who gets credit for it. But who you are before God is who you are. The persuasion, engaging with people, hopefully it's consistent. But who you are before God is who you are. And that's what God measures by. Remember what he's done for you. Also, we would consider to be to, to build up. Don't tear apart. Build up. I understand. I don't mean to sound like there's this active and aggressive division in the church. I really don't believe so. I believe we're seeing it in our community. We're seeing it even in our gatherings. Historically, for 20-some years, I've seen it off and on. And it is not by people, primarily some, but for the most part, it's not by people that are trying to tear other people up. It's by people that are hurt. And you know what happens in a practical sense? Hurting people hurt people. It's not their goal. It's just they're working through things. And, you know, where our role really is to think through is like, how do we, we build up and not tear apart that passage referenced on the projection out of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, it, it reads in, in completeness that we're endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that means that you have the unity of the Spirit, right? You wouldn't endeavor to keep something that you don't have. So we have the unity of this Spirit. Endeavor, we know, implies difficulty working things through and and having to work through some hardship, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And where division is showing itself, if you read uh, Romans 16, beginning in verse 17, there's other parts where we're actually told that when someone is actually divisive, we're to set them aside. We're literally told to reject a divisive person, not count them as a not a part of the family, but recognize we, we got to work hard to keep the unity of the Spirit. Even though we have variance, we have different mat- levels of maturity, different degrees of difficulty, but let's make sure we build up and not tear apart. Number three, keep the main thing the main thing. There will always be points of discussion. There will always be doctrinal differences. There will always be something to debate about, but let's keep the main thing the main thing. The church historically, sadly, has focused on the differences more than the similarities, and, and that produces literally fractions and division and all these different things. When you start looking into doctrine, um, like I hold strongly to a pre-tribulational premillennial viewpoint, and I engage with people that hold other views. That's okay. They're wrong. It's not a big deal. You know, seriously. <laughs> I'm actually very strong in my position. I'm not really going to be persuaded. I'll tell you why. Now, let me finish so you realize I'm not trying to throw in a bonus point here. So the reason is God says in Revelation 6 that that event that's happening and that horrible thing that's unfolding is the wrath of the Lamb. He also says in Thessalonians that his children are not appointed to wrath And he tells us in the word that we, the church, are his bride. So to me, it's not a discussion about doctrine. It's an understanding of character. The character of God is such, you're my bride. I will not pour my wrath out upon you. Because what you see in the tribulation is the wrath of the Lamb. So that's that's a character thing. Now, why do I mention that? Well, because that's one of those that people tend to part ways over. And there's people listening online, maybe even here present, that hold maybe to a mid-trib or a post-trib view. I can sit down with you. We can talk. You're not going to change my mind. I might not even be able to change yours. But hopefully when we get done, we can go to lunch together. That it's not a point that you say, oh, you know, that this is it. I can't handle this, you know. It's like, okay, here's an idea. Grow up, you stinking baby. You can't say that, but you can think it. You know, Maybe just I as a guy can say that there's a point where you're like, you know, this is okay, we disagree. Keep the main thing, the main thing, Jesus is Lord. He actually told you and I the chronology. Do you know, We know you told us what to do? I don't know if you guys have caught this, but Jesus solved this whole problem. I don't know why we're arguing about it. He said this, watch and pray. What he means is keep attention, pay attention, and keep in conversation. And it's going to work out. Oh, really? It's that simple? Yeah, it's really that simple. It actually is. If he wanted it to be differently, he'd have said, listen, this is what's going down. This is the day and this is the hour. But he said, all right, we'll see if you guys can get along. It's going to happen. Watch him pray. Uh, Okay. That's what we're called to do. Make the main thing the main thing. And the last point I would encourage you, live and love at a higher level. You individually are not living at the level of love that you desire to be. I can say that about every one of you and myself. And why can I say something so broad and inclusive? Because I just know. There's not one of us like, nope, I'm right there with Jesus. I'm just nailing it. I'm knocking it out of the park. I'm hitting homers every time I go to bat. We all know, but we're honest, like, there's just areas I could just do better. And it's not performance. It's not you determining a New Year's resolution in the second week of April or third week of April. What it is, it's a realization, God, I need more of you and less of me. I really want to be, I want to, I want to be closer to you. I want to grow closer to you. I want to know you more. In in the 30 plus years that I've been walking with Jesus, I have a greater awareness of my sin now than when I started. I have a greater awareness of my weakness and inability now than, than I did from the beginning. Well, why continue if it's getting worse? Because I actually have an even greater awareness of his grace and forgiveness and then and, and what that means and how it compels me to actually want to walk by faith and believe that he'll change and, and be surrendered to his word and follow his teaching. Because I believe he who began a good work in my life, in your life, in our lives individually, he will be faithful to complete it. Oh man, to have faith in God as we're dealing with our unfaithful selves. What a powerful realization. Hey, the worship team's going to come up. We're going to look at one more verse out of 1 Corinthians, imagine that. In verse 15, chapter 15, specifically verses 57 and 58. Uh, may we have a mindset, uh, an attitude of, of gratitude, even as this verse shows us. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through, Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Will you stand with me? As they prepare and are going to lead us in a song of worship, I would like to pray with you with this verse in mind. Thanks be to you, God, for your faithfulness for your kindness, even for today, that you would bring from, forth from your word things that we're aware of. We, we, we see some of these things in our own lives and, and not in a complimentary way. But thank you, God, according to your word, you walk us through how to let go, how to see from your perspective, how to live in your power, how to even hunger to be a better expression of love, to be a better, have a better experience of love that we would know your love in a deeper way, God. Oh Lord, that we would be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work you're doing, in the work you're doing in us and through us, abounding in the love you placed within us, relying on you more than we rely on ourselves. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. For we know that that which you lead us to and empower us to do is not in vain. It's not pointless for you are faithful. Thank you, God, as we sing this song to you in great gratitude and appreciation for your love. Amen.